staccato handguns are trusted and approved by over 900 elite law enforcement agencies, including 65 SWAT teams. When it comes to accuracy and reliability, the choice is easy with staccato. Hey, welcome back to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, welcome back to our regular listeners and welcome to any new listeners out there. We've got a real treat for you today. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how many times I've said we do not talk about true crime here on the show, but we've had some just awesome guests talking about real crime from their perspective as the investigators. And we've got a San Francisco Police Department legend. I've had, you know, the opportunity and the good fortune to meet him several occasions, uh, learn about his legend and his history. I know his sons, uh, both police officers with San Francisco, uh, Dave and Dan. Dan went on to the FBI, had a, a career there. And uh, and the dad, Frank Falzon, went back and uh, wrote a book about his uh, investigation time, his personal life, uh, his investigative uh, uh, forays into some famous cases uh, that I'm sure you've heard of, the Night Stalker case uh, from Los Angeles and the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, the zebra killings that a lot of you probably haven't heard about, um, parts of the Zodiac case, uh, and the infamous uh, assassination of our mayor, uh, George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk in San Francisco, and uh, the large part that uh, Inspector Frank Falzon had in those cases. Hey, welcome to Policing Matters, Frank Falzon. Well, thank you, Jim, for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, and I, you know, I have the book. I got the book last week. Finally, it took a couple of weeks. I guess you're backed up. Uh, and its popularity, and I um, wholeheartedly endorse it for anyone to pick up and read, whether they have a connection to those cases, or if they just want to hear some, uh, I mean, real history, San Francisco history, and and these larger-than-life cases, and you, larger-than-life inspector, uh, your books about your life and career leading uh, through your experiences, what motivated you to write it? Well, throughout my career, uh, first of all, uh, the book, uh, Five Henry Seven, that people are curious about why that name. And my son, Dave, who's a captain with the police department right now, he came up with that title. Five Henry Seven was who I was to Operations Center and Communications. The five stood for the Inspectors Bureau. Henry stood for homicide. And I was number seven. So 507 is the book. And the book came about throughout my career. I cherish some cases as exceptional police work, uh, dedicated police work, tough cases that were eventually solved. And I had stored these uh, cases over the years. And I thought I was going to take them to my grave because personally, I could never find somebody I trusted to write my story. And about two years ago, during the pandemic, I received a call from a retired uh, San Francisco Chronicle reporter by the name of Duffy Jennings. Duffy Jennings was an award-winning uh, 
Chronicle reporter. He had worked with me throughout the trial of Dan White. Uh, he was one of the few reporters. There was only one other, uh, Jim Wood from the San Francisco Examiner, that was allowed inside the secured area, area behind the bulletproof glass in Department 21. Anyhow, Duffy called me. He wanted to know if I was reading his memoir. And I basically told him I didn't even know he, he had wrote a memoir. But I told him I, I would go get off the phone and buy one on uh, Amazon. And he said, no, no, no. I just sent one in the mail to you. I wrote about you in my memoir. So I want you to read it and get back to me. Let me know what you think about the book. I did exactly that. I read the book, thoroughly enjoyed it, called him back told him I thought it was great. And he says, Frank, how come you've never written a book? And I said, I said, I've had a lot of people talk to me about that. I said, I've never found the right person. He said, do you mind if I look at your material? So I sent him uh, some of my material. He looked at it. He called me up and he says, Frank, I got to write this book. And that was the making of Five Henry Seven. Yeah, it's great. It's a quick read. Uh, it's fascinating. It gives the glimpse behind the investigation. Uh, the Night Stalker case is infamous with books written about it, few movies, the documentary on Netflix. And as I watch with the emphasis on the origin in Los Angeles and the Netflix uh, documentary docudrama, um, the big break came right here in San Francisco. Uh, how'd you get involved? There had been, and we were aware of it in San Francisco, about a serial killer uh, who was running rampant down in the Los Angeles area. And uh, he was known then as the walk-in killer or the uh, Valley Intruder. And this Valley Intruder was a vicious, satanic-worshipping criminal animal who would go into residences, burglarize the home, shoot and kill the husband rape the wife, kill the wife, uh, just a heinous character. Uh, there was one Saturday that my partner, Carl Klotz, and I received a call to respond out to Eucalyptus Avenue. It's in an area by the San Francisco Zoo, Harding Golf Course, and the Ocean Beach. So we responded out there, and this is a very well-kept neighborhood, uh, manicured lawns beautiful neighborhood and everything seemed very serene on the outside and neither Carl or I knew what we were about to walk into. Uh, we met the two uniform officers out in front and uh, we entered the residence and uh, it was horrific uh, to put it mildly. Uh, this animal had pried open the downstairs window with a tire iron uh, got into the garage, climbed the inside staircase, walked into the bedroom where the sleeping couple, Mr. and Mrs. Pan, and killed the husband instantly. Uh, then he viciously raped the wife, shot her, left her for dead, went into their kitchen, ate last night's food, regurgitated that food on the floor, walked into their living room and I guess he was praying to his satanic God. Uh, he drew a symbol on the wall about 
two feet in length and height uh, of a pentagram and etched the words, uh, uh, I can't think of the words right now, but it was uh, uh, obvious that he had pleasured himself. There was semen on the floor right underneath this uh, satanic symbol and the words that he etched into the wall. Uh, we had no no idea what we were getting ourselves into. Uh, Carl and I stuck around the crime scene for a while, returned to the Hall of Justice, put out an all points bolt and hoping somebody somewhere in the state of California would look at it, see something and get back to us. It was that Sunday that my partner Carl Klotz received a phone call from a very sharp dedicated uh, police sergeant in Glendale Police Department by the name of John Perkins. John Perkins called. He told Carl about his crime and husband and wife shot while they were sleeping. And finally, he got around talking to about the bullets left at the scene, the casings. And he mentioned a pink primer, which is pretty rare. And we had pink primer casings left at our murder scene. So Carl got very excited, told me about it. And uh, that next day, we were on an airplane flying to Los Angeles and gleaming as much information from their 15 murder cases. Uh, we worked with the L.A. Sheriff's Department and the L.A. Police Department uh, one or two days each, gleaming as much information as we could. Uh, in the meantime, our Criminalists made a match with the bullet uh, bullets from uh, the Glendale case. So we knew now that we were involved in this Valley Intruder uh, walk-in killer case cases in L.A. And their cases were equally grotesque as our case. Uh, once we were involved and the media picked up on it, he was no longer called the Valley Intruder or the walk-in killer, he became known as the Night Stalker. And the, one of the, probably the biggest manhunts in the history of California was about to take place. Everybody up and down the state became involved. And the competition I saw in Los Angeles was very, very obvious. Both the LAPD and the LA Sheriff's Office, they were doing an awesome job. They had task force set up, men detailed, running down leads in all their cases, but they weren't sharing information with each other. I got the opinion that whoever made the capture was gonna have a story for Hollywood. So that it seems like their interest was more directed to their own well-being. But Carl and I, we gleamed as much as we could. And the single one big thing besides the description of the suspect and a, a composite drawing the one big thing we left Los Angeles with was the name Rick. And we obtained that from the LAPD. Uh, and, and there was investigators, uh, Leroy Orozco and Paul Tippin. They had worked cases before with Carl and I, and they were very, very good friends. And they shared this inside information about Rick. He had been stopped by a LA solo motorcycle cop. And when the cop asked for ID, he produced a card from a dentist's office with the name Rick. 
Once he handed that card to the officer, he bolted, jumped a fence, ran through a park, and got away. But both Leroy and Paul Tippin, the LA investigators, felt this was the Night Stalker. Uh, there was a young person that was there was an attempting kidnapping minutes before this traffic stop. So they felt uh, he ran because he was going to be tied into that attempted kidnapping. So we came back with the name Rick. In the meantime, my son Dan, uh, a uniform officer at Northern Station, had responded to a, a burglary several days before uh, the, uh, the Night Stalker case on Eucalyptus Avenue in San Francisco. It was a burglary case in, involving Dr. Soroyan. And Dr. Soroyan was a prominent dentist living out in the marina uh, off of Bay Street, uh, him and his wife. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, they, they had their niece over that night. She had a girlfriend. Uh, they were downstairs in their basement apartment and they had gone to sleep early around 10 o'clock our intruder while Mr. Soroyan and his wife were out at a dinner party, crawled through the laundry room window. Uh, he left a fingerprint on the glass outside, got into the laundry room, started ransacking the upstairs part of the house, loading up everything valuable that he could see, all Mrs. Soroyan's valuable jewelry, anything else he could grab that had monetary value. Fortunately, he never went downstairs. While the burglary was in progress, Mr. Soroyan and his wife returned home. And we know now that he went to the window and as they were opening the garage door, he was peering out, looking at them. And as they drove into the garage, he exited the front door with his, uh, it was a, um, pillowcase full of stolen property down the stairs and made his getaway. Those two young girls downstairs in the house, Mr. Soroyan and his wife, Marie, don't know how lucky they were that he left and didn't confront them and kill all four. Uh, in the meantime, looking at this burglary report, uh, my son and his partner, Marty Kilgariff, they, they listed everything possible, a very, very thorough police report. And one of the items they listed was a bracelet and something everybody should consider doing. This was a very valuable bracelet. And the doctor etched his uh, driver's license uh, number on the inside of the bracelet. Uh, this bracelet was placed into NCIC, the National Base for Stolen Property. And lo and behold, this was the big break we got. Uh, the bracelet shows up down in Lompoc, California. I call Lompoc. I'm put in touch with a Sergeant Harry Hyde. I explained to Harry who I was and how important I was that I talked to his, uh, his informant. Uh, Harry wasn't too interested in giving up his informant. And this was early in the morning. 
I have to be perfectly uh, honest about it. My blood was hot. I was, I was knew we were on to something very, very vital in breaking this case of the Night Stalker. And Harry wasn't cooperating. And I remember standing up on my desk and I said, Sergeant, let me explain something to you. And I'm gonna be, I'm gonna make myself real clear. Uh, everybody in the office now is looking at me because my voice was getting quite loud. I said, if I can prove that you withheld evidence on this case, I'm gonna come down there personally, place you in handcuffs. Somebody dies this weekend, I'm coming after you. And Sergeant Harry Hyde says, calm down, Inspector. If my informant wants to talk to you, he'll call you uh, in the next few minutes. Well, I got off the phone and my partner, Carl, and a couple of the other officers wanted me to calm down, but I couldn't. I knew this was it. That report that my son and Marty made, uh, this was going to be the link that was going to break the case. Seconds after everybody's trying to calm me down, the phone rings. And it's this man named Earl Gregg. This was the informant that Sergeant Harry Hyde had. And Earl Gregg says to me, uh, yeah, that, that bracelet, I got it from my mother-in-law, Donna Myers. And I said, well, listen, Earl, I, I need to know where Donna lives. I need her address, her phone number. And uh, you don't call her because we're going to pay her a visit. So. He gives me uh, the name, address, phone number. He promises not to call her. Uh, Carl and I get up to leave the office. I turn around. I, I look at uh, one of my dear friends, Inspector Mike Mullane. I, I said, Mike, uh, this thing's about to blow up today. I, I know it. Uh, would you mind coming with us? He says, oh, absolutely. So he puts on his jacket. Uh, the three of us leave. And as we're going towards the... Uh, garage uh, in the Hall of Justice, we passed the cafeteria. Carl and Mike were walking ahead of me. I took a little duck into the cafeteria, grabbed myself a powdered donut. I needed a sugar fix. Uh, I, everything was racing in my body. I get out to the car and I'm brushing white powder off my jacket. And Carl and Mike say, where's our donut? And we all laughed as we headed out over the, um, the Bay Bridge. We get to, uh, first of all, we, we stopped at the um, San Pablo Police Department. I met their chief, a very nice man. Uh, this is pretty much protocol uh, to let another agency know you're going to be in their jurisdiction. So I talked to the chief, real gentleman. He says, uh, I'll give you one of my best men, Frank. And he calls in Detective uh, George Spencer. Uh, George, uh, myself, Mike Malone, Mike Malone. Carl Klotz, we all head out and head over to Donna Meyer's house. Once we sit down with Donna, it was like hitting a home run every at-bat. Every question I threw at Donna Myers, it was magical. She was saying he, he's a Mexican male, real bad teeth. Um, he wears an ACDC hat, a members-only jacket, um, very disheveled, smells. All these things that we learned from the LA detectives were ringing true. And each and every time my partner, Carl, God bless him, he was kicking me in the shin. I finally looked at him like, knock it off. I know this is good. I know we're, 
or on the path to getting the Night Stalker. So we left Donna Meyer's house. Mike Mullane stayed with her, make sure she wouldn't alert her boyfriend. She got the bracelet from Armando Rodriguez. This is a 56-year-old woman who has a 26-year-old boyfriend, Armando Rodriguez. Armando lived in El Sobrante, a sister city to San Pablo, minutes away. So George Spencer drives Carl and myself over to Armando's house. We get there and there's a 10 foot iron gate, double door, uh, no way to get into this property. The house is set back up on a hill. I look across the street, I see the El Sobrante Fire Department. The three of us walk across the street, fire department, the firemen were very, very cooperative. They allowed us to use their phone. I put a call into the house and I made it sound like it was a very urgent matter that I talked with Armando. He said, well, tell me, tell me what you wanna tell me. I said, no, no, I wanna see you in person. Come down to the gate, I wanna to talk to you. So he was reluctant, but he finally agreed to come down to the gate. As he's walking down from the house to the gate, it's a long driveway. He's got two Doberman pinchers on, on leashes. And as he gets to the gate, I'm looking at this guy and these two dogs are growling at me. And I said, Armando, I'm not gonna talk to you with two dogs growling in my face. The information I have is vital to you and you alone. I, I wanna talk to you outside the gate. And I don't know, Carl said something to him. I turned and walked away like I was going to leave. And I started to walk towards the uh, San Pablo police car. I turn around, the dogs are on the other side of the gate and there's Armando standing next to me. He uses a few choice words and he says, what do you want with me? And I said, well, I wanna tell you, your friend Rick, we believe is the Night Stalker. Oh boy, I got a barrage of some of the worst words uh, uh, anybody could say to another person. And he says, I know for a fact, my friend Rick, when he's in LA, murders happen in San Francisco. And when murders happen in San Francisco, my friend is in LA. So my friend Rick is not your night stalker. I said, you know, you may be correct. I said, but I'm the investigator. It's my job to investigate, clear your friend Rick, and then we move on to another suspect. But I need you to cooperate with me. I need you to tell me Rick's last name. Oh boy, another barrage of bad words. And uh, he's calling me every name in the book. So I looked at him, I patted him down for weapons. As soon as I started patting him down, instinctively, my partner opened the back door of the San Pablo police car. I placed Armando in the back seat. Carl went around, sat next to Armando. George Spencer got into the driver's seat. I got into the uh, front seat next to George Spencer. And I lean over looking into the back seat. And I said, Armando, please listen to me. 15 people that we know have been murdered in Los Angeles. Two people in San Francisco that we know at this time have been murdered. 
we need to know Rick's last name. And he, again, comes out with a barrage of foul language, wanting to know who I thought I was, that I could put my hands on him. And he looked down at my hand, and I guess when I was talking to him, I had my fist closed. So as soon as he saw my fist, he raised his hands, and he goes, oh, tough. And he used the word MF again for about the 15th time. And he says, you want to fight, huh? And his hands came up. And one thing I learned a long time ago, as a police officer, you take a lot, but you don't take punches, you don't take bullets. So as soon as his hands came up, that was a challenge to me. And my right hand flew into the back seat. I hit him underneath his left eye. He ended up with a small cut, about half an inch, and he fell over on my partner, Carl Klotz. Carl pushed him back up. Amondo shakes off the blow, dabs the cut, sees blood on his finger. Oh my God, I got another barrage, worse than any of the other ones. And he says, tough guy, huh, tough guy. Let's go, and his hands came up. I said, no, no, no. And his last words to me, he says, is that as hard as you can hit? And I said, oh, no, no, Armando. That is not as hard as I can hit. I'm going, I'm going to show you how hard I can hit. I said, right now, I'm going to come over the seat, and I'm going to split you from the top of your head down to the crack in your behind. And I started over the seat, and he threw his hands up in a cross. And he said, Richard Ramirez, Richard Ramirez, man, Richard Ramirez. Those two words broke our case and all 15 cases in Los Angeles. Uh, my head was spinning. I fell back into my front seat and looked at George Spencer. I said, please drive us to the Hall of Justice in San Francisco. Uh, we ended up with a search warrant on Armando's house. I re recovered tons of jewelry from all the murders in LA. Uh, the Peter Pan's wife's wedding ring. Uh, our, our murder case was made. He identified uh, Richard Ramirez's uh, photograph. I alerted the LA agencies that were involved. And that night, Con Murphy, our chief of police, said, Frank, uh, you and Carl to be in my office at 7.30. Uh, we're having a three-way conference call with Sheriff Block and Chief of Police Daryl Gates. So Carl and I were in the Con Murphy's office at 7.30. The three-way call was underway. And the first one to speak was Sheriff Block of the Sheriff's Department. And he says, my men, Con, want your men to stand down until they can make their cases. And Con Murphy covered up the phone. He looked at me and he says, are you guys willing to stand down? I said, absolutely not, Chief. And he looked at me kind of quizzical. I said, think about it. Everybody in the Hall of Justice today, they know we broke the case. They know that we have an arrest warrant for Richard Ramirez. We sit on that arrest warrant. Somebody's murdered this weekend. How's that going to play in the press? So Khan nods his head, goes back on the phone, and he relates exactly what I said, that his men were not going to stand down. 
And thank God for Daryl Gates. He chimes in. He says, I agree with Con Murphy and I agree with his men. 10 o'clock tonight, this was a Thursday night. We're all going to go live. News, newspaper, any kind of media. And Richard Ramirez's face is going to be broadcast all over the news. And we did that. 10 o'clock, we broadcast uh, every newspaper, every TV channel that would carry it. By Saturday morning, probably 24, 40 hours later, Richard Maris was in custody. Uh, that's how the Night Stalker case got broke. Yeah, so, yeah, in pretty dramatic fashion as well, with essentially vigilantes making the final caller on, on Ramirez uh, in L.A. Uh, you know, as much as was made out in the Netflix uh, series about forensics, about the pentagrams on the floors and the shoe prints outside windows, um, tennis shoes and things like that, um, it really came down to the tried and true of policing, going to the scene, investigating, interviewing, uh, traffic stops. And, you know, a traffic stop was huge in that first uh, important bit of information. Uh, stolen property, burglaries. You know, I've been in the burglary detail and I've been in general work or violent crime detail. And I'll tell you, you know, burglary seen as a property crime, nobody got hurt. But, you know, with Dan and, and Marty Kilgariff making that burglary report, paying attention to detail uh, and writing the report that they did, that was a valuable link, much more than any muddy shoe print uh, in tracking down the final suspect. Uh, interview and interrogation. I don't know if we're doing that anymore, Frank. Uh the, well, <laughs> the backseat interrogation. I'm very, uh, I'm very open about it, very honest about it, because I knew what I was doing. I was stepping on a color. I had handled over 300 murder cases in my police career, probably thousands of interrogations. I had never, never in my life used my hands. But once this individual challenged me, I, I threw the badge out the window. I didn't care if I lost my job. All I knew was I couldn't handle seeing another couple murdered this coming weekend or any day uh, forward. Uh, this case was going to be broke that day. And fortunately, uh, it rang true with uh, Night Stalker being arrested within 40 hours. Yeah, for sure. Hey, and uh, I want to ask you some more uh, specifics about the case, um, including uh, your advice to new investigators, uh, some of the pitfalls in um, talking about case details with elected officials uh, that want to know everything, right? Uh, but first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Choose the handgun trusted by over 900 law enforcement agencies across the country. With Staccato, you can feel confident knowing you aren't sacrificing incredible accuracy for reliability. Whether you're protecting your family at home or on duty, Staccato has your back. Military and law enforcement receive discount pricing through the Staccato Heroes Program. Visit www.staccato2011-heroesprogram.com to learn more. That's Staccato, S-T-A-C-C-A-T-O, 2011-heroes-program.com. 
And we're back and I'm speaking with retired homicide inspector Frank Falzon, San Francisco PD and author of San Francisco Homicide Inspector 5 Henry 7. Well, Frank, yeah, you just told the story about uh, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, who's no longer with us. And, uh, you know, you, you we talk a little bit about all these um, things that we should pay attention to, traffic stops and detail on burglary reports, interview and interrogation. Um, what did you see as some of the biggest challenges in uh, dealing with the people ahead of you? You mentioned Chief Con Murphy. Uh, just terrific man. He was my captain at, at Northern Station before he became chief. And uh, he was a smart man. But then you walk into the room with the mayor. How'd that briefing go? Uh, the, the briefing with uh, Mayor Diane Feinstein. Well, that became a, a, a real big talking point with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department because word was going down to L.A. that it was really San Francisco that broke the case. Well, that was the last thing those two uh, investigators wanted to admit. So they, they would say, well, the only thing San Francisco did, and they blamed Feinstein uh, for going on the air during the investigation and releasing information about uh, the gun being a match to the L.A. cases and about the shoe prints. Uh, we never did uh, locate either the shoes or the gun, so it was suspected that they were thrown over the Golden Gate Bridge. So they would use Mayor Diane Feinstein to diffuse any conversation about San Francisco, uh, myself, Inspector Klotz, or any of the other fine men from the city breaking that case. Uh, they got exactly what they wanted. Those two detectives um, ran up and down the state after their convictions and uh, touted how they solved the case, uh, citing things uh, uh, that really didn't solve the case, but they would cite you know, their shoe prints and uh, their composite drawing and, and anybody and everybody that would listen to them. They did receive uh, uh, the rights to a, a movie and, and a book, and uh, this is what they wanted. Uh, but when it got to Glendale Police Department and Sergeant John Perkins on the Netflix series, John says, you're wasting your time with those two guys. That case was broke in San Francisco. So I was contacted by Netflix and I said, no, I'm not gonna talk about that. And I said, that, that case, uh, probably one of the best investigations my partner and I ever did. I said, but it's not sitting well with me. I'd rather not talk about it. So they offered me a large sum of money to tell my version. And that was one of the first times it was aired uh, in its entirety. Um, I thank John Perkins, I thank Netflix for getting out the truth. Uh, no doubt that the citizens of uh, Los Angeles captured him uh, when he tried to uh, knock over a pregnant woman and steal her car they beat the lemon daylights out of them and uh, arrested them. Uh, but that wasn't what broke the case. What broke the case was everything that happened in San Pablo and El Sobrante. Yeah, great, great work there um, in tracking down the, the stolen property to the to the 
essentially the Northern California fence of Richard Ramirez's uh, stolen property from all over the state. Mm-hmm. And to, but to outside departments, outside agencies, uh, what would there be? What should they focus on at a crime scene, say? Well, one of the first things I learned, and I, I was fortunate to be trained by Jack Cleary, and Jack was uh, one of the more respected homicide inspectors ever, is your crime scene tells you a story. Look at your crime scene, and you look hard enough, it's going to tell you pretty much what occurred. The Night Stalker is a great example. Uh, looking at that crime scene was pretty evident that he climbed through that basement window, went up the inside staircase, entered their bedroom, shot both of them, went to the refrigerator, regurgitated the food, went uh, and inscribed the words, I remember them now, Jack the knife on the wall with a pentagram, his symbol, his God was the devil. And then he pleasured himself praying to his God and left with the stash of stolen property from the Pan's house. So your crime scene tells you a story. Now that you have the story, boy, you got to look at every uh, physical piece of evidence that you have. Fortunately for us, we had those casings from the 22 revolver with, with the pink primer. And that was uh, that was such a key part of getting us involved in the LA cases. And then to think about another dedicated man, John Perkins with the Glendale Police Department, being smart enough to call these different agencies, looking to see if there was a match with his case and hitting a home run when he talked to my partner, Carl Klotz. So there's so much to to the uh, investigation that there's no one single thing. It's, It's everything, it's everything but you can't get overwhelmed with minutia. You you need to look for what you know you can put before a jury and will be evidentiary evidence against the accused. Uh, I I always loved uh, a couple of things. One uh, today probably would be a cell phone. My day, it was the calendar and diary and logs that people keep whether it be doctor's appointment or whatever, you know what they did the day of or the day before a murder. Uh, So those were always key items. And one of the favorite tools I ever had, I would look at my partner because the homicide detail, and I'm sure it's true in all the details, pretty chaotic every workday. But when you think of something, write it down because you're not gonna be able to do everything in five minutes. But if you write it down, you can always go back to it. Once you do it, date it, time it, and put that document into your case file. So the things to do list is which is what I used to call it. And it just kept me in the ball game when I would be getting additional cases. I could always go back and say, oh yeah, this is my things to do list. And this is where I left off. So that that's vitally important as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I guess today's uh, uh, equivalent uh, to the calendar and the notes and the cards of appointments would be the tracking that we have. It's ubiquitous now on our watches and our phones and Google GPS says where you are. Uh, We have cell tower information and so many things that can place people 
uh, I've talked on the show before about Fitbit actually um, confirming a homicide between a man and his sister-in-law, I believe, uh, when they were both wearing Fitbits. He denied being there. She was alive when she when he left. And uh, Fitbit indicated both their GPS location and their heart rates and the end of one heart rate uh, at, at that particular scene. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, new technology out there today to help us with cases. Uh, DNA didn't help really so much in in the early stages of the Richard Ramirez case, but it did lead to a couple of uh, victims after the fact, right after he was in custody. I'm thinking in particular, I was working the night in the northern uh, on Ellis when uh, the young girl, I think she was nine years old, was found murdered and strangled um, under uh, one of our uh, uh, buildings in the in the Tenderloin. Yes, uh, that case uh, was Mike Mullane's, and it has now been uh, linked to Richard Ramirez through DNA. Uh, ironically, you brought up uh, uh, something I had forgotten. Uh, Mike Mullane and myself, uh, Richard Ramirez was brought up from Los Angeles and he was being transferred to San Quentin. But our district attorney wasn't so sure that the LA cases uh, would be upheld because of incompetence of counsel um, for the uh, uh, defense. So he said, please, uh, when Ramirez is up here, take him upstairs, book him in on the murders of Mr. and Mrs. Pan. Uh, so in case those cases are overturned, we can try them. So I went upstairs to city prison. I met Richard Ramirez and uh, he was very talkative, uh, telling me about how he turned down 60 minutes and all these talk shows. And uh, we booked him in. And as he was being led away by the bailiffs to the holding cell, he turned around and he's looking over his shoulder. And I was heading towards the elevator and he hollered, hey, Falzon. And I, I didn't know he knew my name. And I looked at him. I said, what? And he holds up his hand and he had the pentagram drawn on his hand, the, the circle with the star. He holds it up. He says, Falzon, I bet you would like to know about those two old ladies, wouldn't you? He caught me off guard. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. What two old ladies? He says, you know, the two old ladies up on Telegraph Hill, that was me. And boy, whew, I, uh, I was shocked. Yeah, that two old ladies was the Caldwell sisters. And I had that case six months before. So we thought the first time he hit in San Francisco was the Pans. No, he committed the Caldwell cases six months earlier. So we would spend days later looking through all these cases trying to implicate him in additional San Francisco homicides. Well, we were able to clear up, I think about a dozen burglaries, but we only, when I say only, we made five homicides, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Pan, the Caldwell sisters, and the young 10-year-old girl that you were talking about in the Tenderloin who was left hanging from a pipe like she was crucified. Yeah, awful. Hey, I want to thank you. Gosh, you have so many other stories. You know, our listeners are going to have to buy the book 
to hear about the zebra murders and the Moscone milk uh, murders. And gosh, the role that you had there is is another show in itself um, with the parallels um, and your your actual friendship with the murderer involved, Dan White. Um, that's another story. Hey, I appreciate your time. Uh, where can our listeners uh, find the book? And uh, what? where else are you appearing? Where can we find you? Uh, my name, Frank Falzon, F-A-L-Z-O-N.com. And that's where you can get an autographed copy of the book. Uh, if you don't have any luck there, there's always Amazon, Barnes, Barnes & Noble. Uh, no, the book is, has been doing very, very well. Uh, the police department, uh, the Police Officers Association liked the book so much, they bought 500 copies to use as a textbook and a history book. So I'm very pleased with that. Um, but thank you, Jim, for having me on your show. And yeah, I would recommend your listeners, frankfalzon.com. Great. All right. Yeah, I look forward to, to finishing the book and uh, hope to catch up with you again real soon. Uh, thanks for your time. Thank you, Jim. Bye-bye. All right. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Let me know how you uh, felt about today's show and uh, drop me a line at policingmatters at police1.com, policingmatters at police1.com. Hey, stay safe out there and hope to catch up with you again real soon. Take good care. I'm Jim Dudley.